All right, well, um, part two of how not to read the Bible. We started this series last week, and um, I guess the title might be a little bit misleading, a little play on words, because you're like, Phil, are you, are you telling us we shouldn't read the Bible? Like, no, I absolutely want, we want you guys to, to read the scriptures as a church and uh, as followers of Jesus, right? Like, we read the Bible, but we're just kind of pointing out this reality. There are some ways of engaging with the scripture or reading the Bible that are very um, unhealthy, we will say. Uh, that, that this has been used by people throughout history to do some pretty messed up things. Um, that, that the scriptures have been used, they've been abused. We, we, we can sometimes go to the scriptures to make it say whatever we want to say and justify whatever we want to do. And there's a way of actually reading the Bible in, in which we can view it in such a way that it sets our faith up as a house of cards, where someone comes along and, and pulls one little card somewhere in Leviticus, and all of a sudden the whole thing comes tumbling down. We're like, well, we don't want to read the Bible that way. But we do want to actually engage with the scriptures in a faithful way. And, and here's why. Because it is through this text, it's through, through these, these words that have been written and preserved throughout history that we have an encounter in a, and we discover who Jesus is. Um, and, and we want to re- meet the real Jesus. Uh, because we are, man, this is true of every generation. It's true now. It'll be true, you know, a thousand years from now. Like, we... There is so much brokenness and so much pain and so much heartache and so much suffering. It's like we need some hope in our lives. We, we need something to say that it's not supposed to be this way and it's going to be different. And, and what, what, what hope do I have as an individual? What hope do we have as humanity? Like where is this story going? We need, we need something to anchor us. And when, when we open up these, this, this, this text and we read these words, we discover a God who is pursuing people whom he loves relentlessly, as we sang a little bit ago. That he is pursuing us, that he, he, and he steps into history in the person of Jesus. He gives his life uh, on our behalf on the cross to pay for sin, to give us a hope, to give us a future. He rises from the dead, defeats death, and we, we come to know that through this text if we read it and meet it on its own terms. Like the, the challenge is, is that we have to go and say, okay, I'm, I am willing to meet this on its terms and its culture and its place and not demand that this comes and meets me right where I am in 2023. There's a little bit of work to do. And so that's kind of what we're talking about in this series. And so last week we introed things um, and, and we started with these four principles. We said there are four principles for understanding uh, and reading the Bible. I'm gonna go over these quickly. I'm not gonna go a whole lot in depth um, because you can check out last week's message, but this is gonna set us up for today and every single week. Number one, the Bible is a library and not a book. Like this is not just one, uh, one book. It is actually a library of books. It's a collection of documents that, that what we call the Bible is 66 different books written by over 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period. There's all kinds of different genres. There's poetry. There's law. There's history. There's narrative. On and on it goes. And they all communicate in different ways. But this library of books is one unified story that is actually pointing to Jesus. And so it's a library, not a book. The second thing is understanding that the Bible is written for us, but not directly to us. There's wisdom in the scriptures. There's life. We, we meet Jesus. It shows us who God is and who we are and what's wrong and all of these different things. That message is for us, but it comes uh, for us or to us through a group of ancient people, through the ancient Israelites comes through first century Jewish people and first century Roman citizens. And, and, and we have to cross this bridge of interpretation then and go, okay, what did it mean to them in that context? Now, what does it mean to me? Because I know what it meant to them. Final, uh, the third thing, uh, never read a Bible verse in isolation. And so, man, if you just go and pick a random verse, that's where we get into kind of the danger zone of making the Bible say whatever we want it to say. That each verse is a part of a, a larger story, a bigger picture. And we've got to understand 
like what the context of that verse is in the, in the whole story. Finally, the entire Bible points to Jesus. That the point of reading this thing well um, is not so we know more about the Bible, but so that we meet Jesus. We have an encounter, we discover who he is and what he's about whenever we read this text. And so those are kind of our principles, right? And that's going to guide us in the coming weeks. Because now, starting today and in the coming weeks, we're going to say, okay, what happens when you read the Bible wrong? Like, what are some of the objections? Like, where do, where do we get to? And let's use these tools to actually talk about that. We're starting today, and we're jumping um, right into the deep end. We're not, like, not easing into this, because today we're going to ta- t- uh, tackle the topic of, does the Bible support slavery? Like, we're just jumping right in. Um, because this is something that you hear. Raise your hand if you've ever heard this or ever come across something on the internet with like a misquoted verse that says, see, the Bible supports slavery, right? It's out there a lot. Now, notice the question that we're asking. We're asking, does the Bible support slavery? We're not asking the question, has the Bible been used to support slavery? Because the answer to that question is definitely yes. Like this, this thing has been used and abused to support the owning and selling and like brutal treatment of other human beings. Yes, it has been used for that. But the question is, is that what it really says? There are people who have thought that throughout history. And in fact, I want to give us a quote this morning. Um, This is from the Reverend Joseph R. Wilson. Um, Ohio-born, by the way, just down the road. Reverend Wilson was born in Steubenville, um, but uh, wasn't there long. He actually moved down south, became a pastor in Augusta, Georgia. He's a Presbyterian pastor, and he preached a message in 1861 This is what Reverend Wilson had to say. He says, it's surely high time that the Bible view of slavery should be examined. We need to look at what the Bible says about the topic of slavery. We should begin to meet, look at his wording here, the infidel fanaticism of our infatuated enemies. He's talking about abolitionists. They are infidels. They are enemies. We should meet their fanaticism upon the elevated ground of a divine warrant for the institution, slavery that we are resolved to cherish. This is a pastor talking to his congregation, saying that that slavery is a God-ordained, beautiful thing, and we need to to turn to our Bibles and just show those ridiculous abolitionists what's up. You crazy abolitionists. Haven't you ever read your Bible? Now, it can be easy to see or understandable how he would get to a conclusion like that or how the Bible has been misused. If you... Go into like a search, you know, go to Google, go to wherever, and just say, what does the Bible say about slavery? And you begin just reading individual verses, you're going to come across things like this, Exodus 21.2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, and the word that gets translated as servant also gets translated as slave or bond servant, it's a much more flexible word uh, than slave is in our English, but that's the idea, if you buy a Hebrew servant. Not don't, but if you do, it's assumed that it's going to happen. Or how about Exodus 21.7, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, Hey, if you decide you want to sell one of your kids, here's some guidelines for that. And you say, Phil, that, that's, that's Old Testament, right? That's, we're not under the Old Testament anymore. Things are different now. How about the New Testament? Well, let me introduce you to Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. These kind of verses were big-time favorites of pro, like, slavery pro- proponents in the South. Slaves, obey your masters in the same way you would obey Christ. Or one more on Titus teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. And so you can see where we have a problem and how people could say, see, the Bible supports slavery. But let's use, again, the, the, the tools, the principles that we're talking about um, and how do we read the Bible properly to, to see if we can get um, a better understanding of what this actually is. First thing we need to do is, is kind of, we're going we're to talk about this idea of, you know, never read a verse 
in isolation, that it all fits within a larger story. And we talked how there's kind of different acts in the biblical story. So let's go all the way to act one when the story unfolds. We have the book of Genesis. In in the book of Genesis, God creates um, uh, the world, right? He creates everything that we see, which, you know, teaser, we're going to come back to that in a couple weeks and say, does the Bible and science disagree? That's going to be, it's going to be fun. It's probably going to make some of you mad, but hey, <laughs> I'm here for it. But if we go back to Genesis, we see God creating a good world, a beautiful world. It's packed full of potential. Um, and, and, and we see the first introduction to humanity, like the first time that the, that the human beings are on like the stage. We say, okay, what is a human? This is the first thing we read about humans in Genesis 127, that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. What should be jumping off the page at us is God's original design and intention was not slavery. This was not God's invention. It was not God's intention. This was something that humans came along and did on their own. The, the, the image of God, there's this, this idea within Christianity, it's called the Imago Dei. It means the image of God. It's this foundational truth, this reality that every single human being, whoever has lived, who is living right now, whoever will live, uh, you have, we have the phrase from, from womb to tomb, every single human being is someone made in the image of God. Someone who, is, who has inherent, not, not, you don't have to earn it, you don't have to work for it, nobody can give it to you, nobody can take it away, who has inherent dignity and value and worth. They're loved, they're cherished. Every human being made in the image of God right from the get-go. And this is, this is like the, the underlining kind of thing that uh, undergirds like the morality that you see in scripture and the, and the commands that God gives us. People are my image. People are made in my image. People are made in my image. Right? Like it underlines everything. Right from the beginning we see, hey, there is a way that humans are to be treated and property is not how that is. This was not God's design. The institution of slavery and that practice comes after the next act in the story, the fall and the fallout of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, sin and evil enter into the world. God had given humanity this calling to say, hey, I want you to to be my partners on the earth. I want you to bring beauty and flourishing. I want you to rule and reign with me in partnership, and I want you to do it using my definition of good and evil and right and wrong. And humans are like, we're going to do that except we're not. We're still going to do the ruling and the reigning, except we're going to use our own definition of right and wrong. This this becomes represented in Genesis 3 by taking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Humans give God the middle finger and say, I think we know better. And part of the better that we know is we think that, that other people can be property. And this thing, this evil comes into the world. And the next thing that we see in terms of like our timeline for like, how, what, what do we do with slavery? God doesn't design it. God doesn't intend it. It's not his idea. Humans bring about this idea. And then as we open up what we would call like the Old Testament law, we're going to spend some time looking at some law verses. We actually see God systematically and methodically subverting the institution of slavery. This is one of the things that, that it can make us a little uncomfortable and a little bit confused. I'll just be honest about that. It is that, that God so often throughout the scripture chooses to meet people where they are. Right, like there's, there's like the reality of the world that the people in scripture live in and the way that the world works and God says, that's not my idea, that's my, not my ideal, but that's where you are, so I will meet you where you are so I can get you to where I want you to be. And this is what happens with the idea uh, of slavery, specifically 
in the Old Testament. God uh, recognizes that this is a part of the ancient world, and he gives some commands to the nation of Israel, to his people, to begin undermining this and tearing this down. So back to Exodus, right? Exodus 21. I gave you the first half of Exodus 21, verse 2. I'm going to give you the second half. I didn't want to ruin the surprise. So here's what the rest of that verse says. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years, and in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. In the ancient world, the ancient Near East is where this, this kind of takes place. Three or 4,000 years ago in the area that we would now just call the Middle East, Israel had neighbors uh, such as like the, the Egypt and the Babylonians and the Canaanites and the Assyrians. And if you were to go to any of those groups of people, we were to hop in a little time machine uh, and go to ask them, hey, um, w- what's your thought on slavery? They wouldn't bat you know, an eye. They'd be like, oh yeah, this is just how, this is how it is. Like, yeah, well, I've got slaves, you've got slaves, or I am a slave, or you are a slave. It's, like, it's just kind of how the world worked. And so when they would read, if Israel's neighbors would read the first part of this verse, they'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's the world that they know. But when they read the second part of that verse, they would lose their crap, okay? Like they would just be like, what do you mean we have to let them go? They're people. They're, they're not people. They're property. We own them for life. And God begins to undermine this and say, no, 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 no. Not with my people. That's not how this works. If I can go a little bit uh, into the Old Testament a little further, into the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, if you want to look it up. Um, and God even gives some more kind of instructions on when you let this slave go, here's what you do. And he says, you don't send them away empty-handed. You give them animals from your flock. You give them grain from your fields. You give them wine from your, from your wine presses. You send them off and you bless them whenever they leave. And then in, in uh, Deut- me, Deuteronomy 15, verse 16, he says, but if your servant says to you, I don't want to leave because I love you, you're like, what? That is crazy. Why would the servant or the slave not want to leave? And, and this, is, this is what God is doing. He says, I know, slavery is a part of the world that you know that you experience, but I want it to be so different that you treat them so well that they actually want to stay with you. That, that, that Israel was, was to be set apart and so different from the nations around them that the peoples kind of looked on and said, you're crazy for how you treat other people. You treat them so well. And, God, and they say, yeah, but that, that's, that's how our God is. That's how our God is. How, how, about, how about this? You go down a, a few verses further in, in Exodus. Um, Exodus 21 has a lot of these kind of like passages that are like, hey, if you have a slave, here's what you do, here's what you do, here's what you do. And it really elevates the status of slaves in that culture. Um, it's interesting. There, there is actually a thing like we talk about slavery in our history and in our culture. There's a thing called the slave Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Uh, there's a few in print still that you can, I think there's like the, the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. You can see one there. And there are passages that are left out of it. These would be Bibles that would be given to slaves or used with slaves. And wouldn't you know it that one of the primary things in the Old Testament that's left out is the, like, the entire book of Exodus and the Israelites leaving slavery and God like condemning these things. And so you get further in Exodus 21, and how about this, Exodus 21, 16. Whoever kidnaps a person, whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. God says, you, 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 can't, you can't kidnap people. Kidnapping people against their will, it is wrong. Not that you can kidnap somebody with their will, so my misphrasing on that. <laughs> you cannot kidnap somebody and make them your slave. And so we, we hold these two things in tension where you have a practice that was common in the ancient world, that slavery was a thing, that nobody thought it was any, it was, it was like no big deal. People did this, but God tells his people, listen, what you need to know is you cannot, you cannot make somebody a slave against their will. 
You cannot kidnap them. Now, here's where I need to pause for a moment and kind of highlight the difference between slavery that we read about in the Bible versus slavery in our culture, in our kind of our cultural mind today, because they're very, very different things. Now, when I say that slavery in the, in, the, in the scriptures versus slavery today are different things, please do not hear me saying, because in no way am I saying that slavery then, it was fine and good and we should do that. It was not. It was bad. It was evil. In fact, again, God systematically dismantles the whole thing, but they were very, very different. When, when we think about slavery in our mind because of our cultural context, because of our nation's history and that like black mark on our history, and because of just the cultural conversation, when you hear the word slavery, when we read that in the Bible we think of race-based chattel slavery. We think of the transatlantic slave trade. We, we, we think about people who were primarily of African descent being ripped out of their homes, brought to the Americas, and sold to wealthy people primarily of European descent. That is the image that we have. But what I want us to see is between three and 4,000 years ago, before that was ever even in anyone's imagination, God comes along and says, you can't kidnap people and sell them. It's wrong. My people won't do that. That's not how I intended things to be. And so it brings to reality, again, this picture that it's different, and we need to have that different picture in our minds. Uh, slavery in the Old and New Testament were primarily, it was primarily part of an economic system. And so, again, um, that the word that we translate as slave can be slave or servant or bondservant. It's got a wider kind of use of, um, just way of using it. There was still a master-servant relationship. There was still a master-slave relationship. But it is an economic system that was not based on kidnapping. It was not based on race. And here's what I mean when I say it's an economic system. So as, as this law is going out to Israel, in the ancient world, it was common. It was common for people who were in poverty, who were stuck in poverty, to sell themselves into slavery to survive. The options were like, I don't have, I don't have food, I don't have shelter, I don't have clothing. I, am go- I either die or I sell myself to someone who has resources and I survive. The same is true with kids. And as much as like that is just an atrocity and like it just, we can't even get our minds around that. But it would not be uncommon for poor parents to say, you know what, if I keep my child, my child dies. But if I sell them to this wealthy person, at least they will survive. It brings, just highlights the brutality of the ancient world. It is something that as modern people, we can't even get our, our minds around. And so it was this economic reality. And when God begins to make laws that he gives to his people about it, it is not him saying, hey, I like this. This is a good thing. You should do this. It's him saying, this is the reality of the broken world that you live in. Let me put some protections in place and let me dismantle this piece by piece by piece. It was a common practice. It was an economic system. Even by the time we get to the New Testament, uh, in the Greco-Roman world, so uh, when the New Testament is being written, Jesus, the time of Jesus and the apostles, um, in the Greco-Roman world, cultural historians will tell us that about one in three people in the Greco-Roman world were actually slaves. A third of the population were part of this class known as slaves, and it was, again, different than ours. It was not race-based. Um, it was not, uh, it, it was not, they were not seen as subhuman. Um, in fact, they, many of them were very well-educated. If you were to go to a doctor or a lawyer in the ancient world, you were most likely going to see a slave. Because people who wanted to be doctors or lawyers, like, well, I can't afford that education. I can't afford that training. Let me find a, a wealthy benefactor and say, well, you pay, if you pay for my education, I will then become your, your family's personal lawyer and doctor. That's how the system worked. Again, not to say that that was good, but that was the reality of human history. 
And so here's what we have. We have, human, we have God creating a world where all people are on equal plane, okay? Everyone is equal in God's image. Everybody is made in the image of God. Everybody has that dignity, that value, that worth, that, that they deserve that respect, they deserve that love. Humans come in and say, I think we know better. Let's begin this thing called slavery. God steps into a world and calls out a people and says, this is the world that you live in, but I want you to be different. I want you to be set apart. And through these laws that I am giving you, I'm going to tear this down piece by piece by piece. So you read through the Old Testament and you read these laws that were so radically progressive for that world. Like they would just seem insane, the dignity that God is giving to people compared to the world around it. And piece by piece, it starts coming down. And then you hit the New Testament and Jesus steps onto the scene. And this just goes to a whole nother level. Because Jesus shows up in a culture and society and begins to, to, to welcome and to talk to and to touch and to associate with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, lepers, uh, the, the lame, the blind. He begins associating with them, the groups of people and the class of people who some of them may have been slaves themselves or they are in that same kind of category of social class. And Jesus says, this is who I'm here for. This is who I choose to spend my time with. When God shows up as a human, these are the people that I care about. And the early church saw this and caught on to this. That this teaching begins to take off in the early church. They look at the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and they realize he's calling us to be different kinds of humans. And as the, the early church begins to kind of flesh out what does it look like to follow Jesus, they were confronted with the issue of slavery in their culture. We actually have a, like a, a real-life case study of this. So in the, in the New Testament, right, we talk about we have different uh, kinds of literature. There's this section called epistles. They're letters that are, are written to first century churches or first century Christians. We have a letter written by the Apostle Paul um, to an individual, a guy named Philemon. Uh, and we have that in our Bibles as we call it the book of Philemon, but it's a letter written from Paul to another guy. It's really short. It's only one chapter long. Um, so you don't even have like chapter and verse markers. It's just verse markers. But Philemon was a wealthy man. Philemon was a Christian. Philemon was a part of the church in Colossae. So we have a letter to the Colossians. That was the church that Philemon belonged to. Um, because Philemon was wealthy, he was a benefactor of that church, but he also would have owned slaves. To be a wealthy person in the Roman Empire meant he was a slave owner. And then he has a slave by the name of Onesimus. And somewhere, Onesimus and Philemon, they have a falling out. Uh, scholars tend to think that, that it was likely that Onesimus stole from Philemon as they kind of read between the lines about what that would have been to, to cause that falling out. So Onesimus wrongs Philemon in some way. He likely steals from his master and he runs away. A little bit later down the road, uh, by providence, Onesimus meets the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul shares the gospel with Philemon and Phil or, excuse me, Onesimus, and Onesimus ends up becoming a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus. And the spirit begins to work in Onesimus and begin to convict him that, hey, I, I stole from my master, I wronged him, and I ran away. I need to go back to him and, and make things right. And so Onesimus goes back to Philemon, his owner, the one who he stole from, and Paul sends a letter to Philemon to say, here's how you are to receive your slave back who stole from you, who wronged you. Now, in, if, if, if we're setting this up to be like, okay, here's the ancient Roman world, here's the Roman culture, you give anybody else that scenario, the world around them says, you punish him, he is yours, he is your property, he wronged you, he deserves to be punished, and you do whatever you want to with him, really. But that's not what Paul says to Philemon. This is verses 15 through 17. Paul says, perhaps 
the reason he was separated from you, so the reason that Onesimus was separated from you, Philemon, for a little while, was so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul tells Philemon, hey, listen, I, I know what the world says you should do about this, and I know how like, this, this, this ugly thing of slavery happens within the Roman Empire, but I'm telling you in this situation, I know he's wronged you, I know he stole from you, I know you, like, technically you have every right to do whatever you want to, but I'm telling you he's your brother. He's your fellow man. He's someone who's made in the image of God. He's someone who Christ died for. His faith is in Jesus. Receive him back as a brother. And then Paul wraps up this thought with like an even crazier idea. He says, so... If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. This is the Apostle Paul, who's like a big deal in the first century church, like the, like the, the primary leader, the guy that gets all, like the, get, gets all the press. Like this is Paul, who Paul, who before he became a Christian, was a Pharisee. And so he was, he's very well educated. He, he's very well connected. He would be very wealthy. Paul is also a Roman citizen. Not very many people who lived in the Roman Empire were actually citizens. To be a citizen puts you in like the highest class of people in the Roman Empire. This is Paul on one end, Onesimus who's a slave on the other end, and Paul telling Philemon, there's no difference between us. I want you to welcome him as you would welcome me. And this is the ethic that gripped the, new te- like the first century church. This is what began to happen. It wasn't just an isolated uh, instance between uh, Onesimus and Philemon and Paul telling this to one, one person. This, this idea comes up over and over and over through the New Testament letters. Perhaps the most famous passage in Paul in his letter to the Galatians, telling the Galatian church how they should live out the Christian faith, says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. So there, there was major ethnic tensions within uh, the first century and the first century church. And Paul says, nah, there, there, there's, no, there's no ethnic divide here. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter where you come from or what your background is or if you're a slave or a slave owner. What, like, no, 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 we are, we are on equal ground here. There is neither male nor female. There's no hierarchy. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul, Paul is telling the Galatian church, telling the churches that, would, that this letter would circulate to, telling us today, hey, listen, I know what the world is like. I know what the world around you says is okay. I know how culture is. I know, I know that like, this is a normal kind of the way that the world operates. There's some who are slaves or some who are free. That's just your lot in life. You just got to deal with it. It's okay. Paul's saying, not here, not with us. It's not Okay. Because we are in Christ. The church is a kingdom outpost. Christians are kingdom ambassadors. Our allegiance lies with Jesus alone. And so Paul instructs the first century church in this way to say, hey, we are going to live that reality out. We are going to be so bold about it. We are going to have such conviction about it that kingdom values and kingdom culture end up infecting the world around us and the world will change because of it. And it did. It was Christians in the first century Roman Empire that elevated the status and the dignity of every single human being that brought these practices toppling down. It was that vision. It was understanding what these scriptures say and understanding the story of it from beginning to end and what it actually means and what it actually says. It was followers of Jesus understanding that that brought an end to slavery in this country. So the question is, does the Bible support slavery? No, the Bible doesn't support slavery. The Bible subverts slavery. 
It doesn't support slavery. It was an abuse of the scriptures that propped the institution of slavery up. It was people cherry-picking whatever they wanted. Like the, the tragic kind of twisted irony is that when people say the Bible supports slavery, they're reading the Bible the same way that the proponents of slavery did. The Bible tears it down. It, was, it ended up being, while a, a poor reading of the scripture propped it up, a proper reading and understanding of the scripture is what brought it down. It was, it was that understanding. The majority, the vast majority of abolitionists, the vast majority of the people that we learn about in school, when we read about these names, these famous names that were leading the way and ending slavery, the vast majority of them were driven by their faith in Jesus and their understanding of the scripture. Names like Charles Finney, John Brown, William Wilberforce, Angelina and Sarah Grimke, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Elijah Lovejoy, Harriet Beecher Stowe, on and on and on. All of them held this and said, we know what this says. We know who Jesus is, so we are going to fight for this. And that's what brought it to an end. This is, it is a real living, breathing, historical example of why how we read the Bible matters. Because if we do it poorly, it can lead to a lot of tragedy and a lot of pain. But if we do it right, there's freedom for people. Spiritual freedom, physical freedom, all of it. So does the Bible endorse slavery? No. It's the opposite. When we read it correctly, we realize that God never intended this. This wasn't his idea. He intended for all people to be equal. They're all made in the image of God. Humans come along and create this institution because they're sinful, because they're broken. And God says, I, that is not my ideal. I will meet you where you are to bring you to where I want you to be and begins to put all these regulations in place. Jesus comes along and shows just incredible value to every single human and says, I love every human being so much that I'm willing to die for them. And through his teaching, through his example, through his life, death, and resurrection, the first century church and Christians throughout history have begun to see that and say, no, there are things that are wrong and there are, there are, there's directions that we are moving because we understand this story. As if, you're, if you're a Christian, I want, you to, I want you to hear this. I want you to know this. if you're a follower of Jesus, this is our story. This is our heritage. This is our history. Like we're the ones that have, have been there to say, listen, there's a way that humans should be treated and we will fight for that. And so, so what, does that, what does that mean? What does that look like for us? First of all, Embrace it as part of your own story. Because later in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians 4, 7, he actually says, you are no longer a slave. As in all of you were, but you're not anymore. You are no longer a slave. You are a child of God. Because all of us have been in bondage of some sort. All of us have been in bondage to sin and to evil and to these desires that just lead to destruction in our lives and the people around us. He says, you can be set free from that. You are no longer a slave, but a child of God. And that becomes a reality that we live out of and that we fight for. We fight for other people to no longer be slaves. And that's true on a, like, in, a, in a spiritual sense, right? We want, we want to see people freed from sin and from death and all the powers of Satan. We say, like, you can be free from that. But it's true in a physical sense still as well. That slavery still exists today. In fact, by most estimates, there, there are more people in slavery today than there have been at any point in human history. Best estimates put it between 40 and 50 million people around the world in slavery. 40 and 50 million. Primarily women and children, by the way. And as followers of Jesus, we, we take the same scripture and the same story and say, you know what, everyone should be free. 
free from sin, free from evil, and physically free as well. And so as a, as a church and as a group of people, we're called to live this. We're called to own this, to know that we are free and to fight for freedom in every, everything that we do, every action. So, so here, here, here real practically, here real practically what, what this means is when you're confronted with the evils of slavery and when someone says, hey, you know, slavery is evil and Christianity propped it up and people use the Bible to do it, don't get defensive about that. Don't be like, oh, no, no, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. Like, like just because that doesn't help anything. So you know what? You're right. That happened, and it was wrong. And then you say, it was wrong, and it's not what this says. Here's what the scripture actually says. Here's what the message of the scripture actually is, that Christ came to proclaim freedom to the captives, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from any kind of slavery, be that spiritual or physical. And we point people to that, and we proclaim that, and we fight for the freedom of people around the world who are still caught in that. We fight it with our actions, with our attitudes, with the organizations that we support, with the things that we buy. I know that one hurts a little bit because it's like, oh, I, I like spending cheaper on things, but is that keeping certain people in slavery? I don't know. That's something you gotta wrestle with. We can't just brush this stuff off because Jesus holds us to a higher standard to proclaim freedom to the captives, to point people to him, the one who sets us all free. So does the Bible support slavery? Not at all. It subverts it. Next week, we're gonna get into another just non-controversial topic, is the Bible anti-women. So be back for that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much. Um, Lord, we thank you that, uh, that you came to set us free. Lord, that, um, that all of us in some way or another have been slaves. Slave to sin, slave to, to evil, slave to death. Lord, slave, a slave to addiction, a slave to, to grief, a, a slave to just the desires of our own heart that we just keep tearing our own lives down. God, we have been in slavery, and we thank you, Jesus, that you came to set the captives free. So, Lord, I pray that we would be people who live as free people and that we would be people that proclaim the freedom that is found in Christ, that we would fight for the freedom of others, be that spiritual, be that physical. God, our prayer is to see people set free. My prayer is to see people set free today. The people who are here in this room that just feel like they are a slave to something, Lord, bring freedom into their lives. Pray this all in Jesus' name.